Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. My distinguished guest today is Marianne Scully. Marianne is the chair, founder, and CEO of Howard Bancorp and Howard Bank. Howard Bank is a 2.6 billion asset community bank that trades on NASDAQ and is headquartered in Baltimore. Marianne, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. So I got to ask, as we dive into the talent pool, you started the bank in 2004. So in 2003 or four, you're planning this launch of this bank. Not that long after the crisis of 9-11, the tech bubble burst. What possessed you to start a bank in the first place? We never really talked about that and, and at that particular time. Well, I, the honest answer is that like many people that start De Novo Banks, the catalyst was a transaction that I was involved in. I spent almost 30 years at the First National Bank of Maryland that became all first, um, rose through the ranks there, and in 2000 was running what we refer to as the regional banking group. So 230 branches, all of small business lenders, middle market, the support groups that went around those groups, about $8 billion out of that $18 billion bank. And then in a consolidating industry, M&T Bank uh, bought All First. Um, that launched what has been for them a very successful and very well done movement into the southern mid-Atlantic area. And as a result of that, given what my options were there in terms of a narrower bond band of responsibilities, um, I was fortunate enough to have the economic wherewithal because of how the transaction was structured to move on and do other things. And people immediately thought, as I said, that I was going to leave, that I would be starting a bank. And I will tell you that I very honestly and sincerely told people when I left in April of 2003 that I was not sure that I would do that. But I think the interesting aspect is that people thought that I would do that because as somebody who started my banking career in large corporate, went on to run international mm -hmm. banking, went on to run strategic planning and M&A, um, I had become a huge believer in the community banking model. And in the last five years of my life, spending time running different areas of community and regional banking, everyone knew that I was always telling everybody, you know, we're missing the boat here in terms of not paying attention to these smaller players. They're the ones that are picking up all the market share. And so people saw something perhaps before I did, but that catalyst in terms of, you know, leaving a company that I was long associated with and very fond of, but then having the ability to execute on this relatively more newly found dream and vision of what banking could be led me in August of 2003 to start raising capital for what became Howard Bank in August of 2004. You know, we've known each other a long time, but I never asked you this question and you don't have to answer it. But um, do you think you were a contender to be the next CEO at All First? Uh, had they not sold the bank? Were you in that? I think I was on a short list, but I wasn't on a, a three person list. <laughs> well, so if we roll the clock back to 
you know, when you and I started in banking, you know, in, in 40 years ago, there were over 15,000 banks in this country. And as you know, today, there are less than 5,000 charters. And that includes the thousand plus de novos that probably started around the country over those 40 years. So, you know, we've lost, you know, well over 10,000 banks in this country. And obviously, there's a lot of consolidation taking place today. Why, why has there been so much consolidation? And where are we going to end up when this new phase or newly re-energized phase winds down? Where do we end up here? Well, I, I, there's a lot of reasons, as you know, and, and more than one can cover in one podcast in terms of why the consolidation. The, the banking industry is much more challenging economic model than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, the good news is that the industry became much more deregulated during the time period after I started in banking. The bad news is the process of deregulation means that in some cases, rational pricing goes away. And so between the need for scale, which has always been the theme in consolidation, it's certainly what everybody talks about right now, but it's always been about scale and how can you leverage the need to do certain things at any bank um, over a greater number of people and become more efficient at it. In, the, in recent years, I think it's also been because of some macroeconomic path policies, a, a very low interest rate environment is a very challenging interest rate environment inherently for any bank. And when you combine that with intense competition, it makes it difficult. It makes it very challenging. It, it brings on a need not just for scale, but for revenue diversification. So I don't see the consolidation trend declining, but I think you've touched on one thing in terms of 15,000 down to 5,000. If it had not been for, candidly, a much easier de novo chartering environment 20 years ago, then today the number would be even smaller because the level of consolidation, investment bankers will tell you this all the time, hasn't really changed that much in terms of the percentage of existing banks that sell every year. What changed was the dynamic that a certain number of those banks were replaced by de novo banks. And that all stopped for all intents and purposes with the Great Recession. But the other thing that I think people miss, and I will answer the question of where do I think this leaves us, is the distribution of those 5,000 banks that are left. And I remember being on an FDIC advisory council. Marty Gruenberg ran the council when I was on that advisory council. He was very passionate about community banks and the role that they play both in small communities, but also with small businesses. So not just town size, but business size. But I remember saying to him, you're not really worried about banks like my bank that operate in wealthy suburban and urban environments. You're worried about the banks that are sitting in the middle of the country that are family owned, that have less than $100 million in assets. And if that community loses its bank, Bank of America is not going to come in and want that branch. So so, so, so much of what drives the 5,000 number are the under $100 million players. 
And the, the more interesting, selfishly from my standpoint, is what happens to those banks that are in the 500 million and up range. And there are fewer and fewer of those banks because they've made a decision. If you're at that level, you've made a decision that you want to grow. You've made a decision that you want to be relevant. You want to be impactful. And so you've set yourself on a path that means one way or another, you need to try to find this scale and this revenue diversification. So when attorneys and accountants locally say to me, I just read something that said there's going to be 100 banks in the country in 10 years. I tell them, no, I don't think that's true. This isn't Canada. Um, I don't think we're going to get that small. But I think you are going to, over time, find fewer and fewer people in that 500 million in asset range and up. So the number of banks will stay reasonably robust and profuse but more and more as a percentage of those 5,000 or 4,000 or 3,000, and I think it may end up somewhere in the 3,000 range, right. be the really small $100 million, one community focused banks. Right. And that's that barbell thing we've heard about a lot, right? The really mega banks and the really little guys. I was trying to pull up some data while we were talking. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's super current, but um, the percentage of, of deposits in this country controlled by the big four banks, JP Morgan City, Wells and Bank of America, you know, has increased dramatically after the financial crisis relative to where it was before. And, 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 and they haven't acquired any, any banks, you know, since the end of the financial crisis, right? So, you know, there is a piece of the service and the access and the technology at the same time as they're consolidating the number of offices they have. Um, and to, so it's really interesting dynamic that you're talking about. And I think there's less than a thousand banks over a billion dollars in assets in this country today as well. So the technology piece of this, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine today and he went to a small community bank to open an account for his son. And it just, it took forever. They, they didn't get a piece of data. They had to call him back to come back to sign one more form. And his wife said, well, we're doing our banking, you know, personally at one of these mega banks. He wanted to try to mix it up, go to a small bank, support the little guys for his son's account. He's a teenager. She said, why aren't we just doing another account with the big bank? Because you can do it in 20 minutes online. So a very simplified example of technology. How, how does that play out for banks like Howard Bank that, don't have the all the technology, and yet you can get a lot of the technology from a good core provider. And how is that? You 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 can. And the definition of you know what's the hurdle that you need to overcome? You know, even when we started the bank, we said to people that we're we we're not in a position where we're going to be able to ask them, especially since our targeted clientele was businesses. You can have either technology or you can have us. That's not a very robust or sustainable value proposition. But fortunately, you, you can acquire a certain baseline level of technology through these core providers, you know, and that's also another consolidating industry and, and an industry where any one client of those core providers doesn't really have a lot of leverage which can sometimes be uncomfortable, but the difference is it provides you with the basic access to technology. 
And yet I, I think that the technology hurdle gets higher and higher. And for a long time, probably for a commercially focused bank, as long as you had good treasury management products through your core provider, you weren't besieged by all the changes in technology. But We've recently gone to online account opening, and we've found ourselves wanting to avail ourselves much more of the internal elements of technology. So the early stages of artificial intelligence, RPA, the things that just help you be more efficient from a processing and a compliance standpoint, those are all smart things to do. And certainly customer behavior is suggesting to us that while people value a personalized experience, it doesn't necessarily need to always be a face-to-face personalized experience. So technology continues to change um, as a result of customer behavior. It's not just because there's some technology company pushing product. Product only gets pushed successfully if there's a willing buyer. And so there are customers are the willing buyers. It, For us as a commercial bank, the the technology challenges to some extent are still how do we make ourselves more efficient using internal technologies? Uh, You still don't find a lot of automated underwriting at the middle market level and so on, but it is an ongoing investment that you have to make. And the digitalization of the bank more so than um, online banking or robust website, which were the barriers to entry in 2004, that's not the the, the barrier to entry any longer. It's, It's a much more broad scope around how do you digitalize yourself as much as possible. So we have a client in New Jersey, um, Blue Foundry Bank, about $2 billion bank just converted to a fully public company, a little smaller than you, about $2 billion. They have no paper in the company. The mail comes, you get snail mail comes in, it gets digitized, sent everything. There's no paper in the company anywhere, which kind of goes to what you're talking about, internal um, efficiencies. Um, I I haven't yet encountered any other banks that have gone that far. I'm sure there are banks that have done it, and maybe some of the mega banks are trying to do that, but they're really trying to squeeze as much cost out as possible. And, and did they start that way, Alan, or did they at some point convert? No, they just went through a whole conversion. They built a new headquarters. It's sort of state of the art. They just converted from a mutual to a public company literally in the last few weeks. So, you know, they already had plenty of capital and they have tons more capital they have to deploy. But yeah, they, they spent a fortune on a new building, but it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because it does... There's got to be some inherent efficiency and accessibility into that. And they had just digitized everything. You know, we're in the middle of that when COVID hit. So that made it really good, you know, from a data access point of view. But um, it's a pretty interesting strategy, don't you think? I, I think it's a very interesting strategy. I think it's probably the right strategy. And I applaud them for having the courage to go through it. Because the longer you wait to do that, the more difficult it becomes, sure. of course. It's kind of like, you know, the longer I wait to digitize all my photos that are in albums for my youth, the harder it's going to be. So sticking with technology for just a minute, you know, every time I go to a conference or something on banking, it's like fintech, 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 you know, and 
many of those companies are nothing more than lead generation online players. On the other hand, there's tons of companies, you know, SoFi and PayPal and lots of others that are really having an impact on the industry, really garnering customers. You know, do you see a shakeout coming in the fintech side? Because, you know, they have the advantage of not having the bricks and mortar cost structure. On the other hand, it can be a little more impersonal, but maybe that's okay with a large segment of the population, especially, you know, younger generations. So how do you see the, the bank fintech tussle playing out with the key players? Well, I think most with some bias, this is our strategy, I think with some bias, the smart fintech providers and the smart banks recognize that their best avenue of success is partnership rather than just total obliteration of your competition. You know, the fintech companies, because most of them are smaller, are going to be more agile, are going to be able to try lots of new things, which is at the end of the day, the key to successful innovation. But they don't have necessarily the capital to maintain portfolios. So if it's a lending fintech, at some point, they've got to sell that paper to somebody else. They, they, they just can't keep all of it on their balance sheet forever, partly because, and this is the real wrinkle down the road, they don't have access to the same funding sources that banks do. Uh, the depository players don't have access to the payment system, so a related element of the funding sources. And most successful fintechs have been partnering with banks, and banks are finding ways, at least as clients of the fintech, and in some cases as minority owners in the fintechs, finding ways to partner with them. So I think that's the the key going forward. Now, the wild card is if the regulators, and specifically if the Federal Reserve make a dramatic change in who has access to the payment system, so that the people that have the, the sexy front ends who have captured the, the checking account market but still need a bank behind them to really get into the payments and make the payments flow, um, those, if they get direct access, then that's a very different game. Is it immediately going to affect these banks that are in the one to 10 billion category? No, it's going to most immediately affect the mega banks who are the ones that are providing that access to the payment system. But it will have a trickle-down effect. And, and certainly I and I think other CEOs that are in our size category are not only closely watching, but working on some ABA task forces to make sure we understand what does access to the payment system look like? Because that, that could be the wild card that not only changes the fintech bank dynamic, which today is mostly economically oriented towards partnership, but it also, I think, affects the future of commercial banking because with low interest rates in a very competitive environment where so many of the asset classes that banks used to participate in and that they don't participate anymore. Banks don't do their own auto loans for the most part. They don't do their own unsecured lending. The fintechs and the captives own that space. 
Um, they, if they originate their own mortgages, they sell them. Otherwise, they buy their mortgages to keep a diversified mortgage portfolio. Um, so, so, so many asset classes that banks used to participate in have been, as I put it, hollowed out. And so it's really mostly the commercial space that banks still operate actively in, which isn't to say on the very small side, you have competition from the fintechs. On the very large size, you have competition from insurance companies and consolidators and the investment banking market itself. But in that limited asset class that you're playing in, you're still getting a lot of competition and your ability, especially in a low interest rate environment to compete, is really driven by that access to the payment system you have. You can charge somebody less than 4% for a 15-year loan if your cost of funds is zero. Right. It's a little bit like there's, you got Venmo and you've got Zelle, right? And they're coming at it from very different places, right? which is part of why Zelle happened, right? To try to keep as much of that within the payment system as possible because it's owned by a consortium of banks. I don't know whether you're a Zelle Participate. We we are a Zell member, and and yes, I mean Zell was critically important um, as Venmo became more and more successful, and there's still a waiting list as long as your arm of people trying to get into the Zell queue with their core provider. Oh, really? Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, because it needs more marketing and branding to go up against uh, Venmo. I would think it 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 does. It, does. Yeah, it works just as well. We use it sometimes. Um, so. Last question, how does the, the post-COVID world get impacted by, how does, yeah, how does the post-COVID world get impacted or impact all of what we've been talking about? Consolidation, technology, scale, feels to me that the COVID, frankly, feels to me that COVID did in, in 30 or 60 days what billions of dollars of marketing to drive people to technology still wasn't really doing, right? It's just like all of a sudden, you know, including for our business, you know, is, is it, I feel like it's accelerating things, but you tell me. No, I think it's, I think it's a real game changer. And I, the only thing I caution everybody is it's a game changer, but we don't exactly know what the new game looks like. And no matter what we think we're not going to know for probably a couple of years. Um, but in the technology element of it, again, I think for even very small banks, banks that we know well in our local market, pivoted very well to, to technology in the remote working from home environment. Um, again, that's the access to technology that everybody gets, whether it's through Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever. So the technical element is probably less significant for me in the long run, as opposed to what are the cultural impacts of that working from home environment? You know, a, a community bank, a young bank like ours, um, you know, we've always been, we thought, very flexible, but I, I look back and think we were very flexible on an ad hoc basis. You know, if you needed to take some time, if you needed a slightly different schedule for a period of time, just do it. You know, we, we know you. The advantage of being a bank our size is we intimately know and can trust our staff. But now we're talking about people who want to permanently work from home at least a certain number of days a week. 
again, the industry has pretty remarkably and pretty consistently accommodated itself to that. We're telling our people, yes, talk to your supervisor. If you only want to come into the office three days a week, that's fine. Um, but, but there will be people that will want to work from home five days a week. That's right. And, and how permanently flexible will we be around that? And for me, the residual question isn't, can people get their work done? Sure, they can get their work done. We've proven that. Um, can people still work on strategic initiatives? Absolutely, we've proven that. Can people be as innovative? Time will tell. You know, innovation's been driven so much in a traditional environment by the the dropping into somebody's office and having a third person come in, something magical happening there. It's driven by spontaneity and and you you can't be spontaneous when you have to schedule a Teams call or schedule a Zoom call. Um, Now that doesn't mean though that it can't happen. It's just less of a clear path to can that happen. And then the other residual question for me is, so much of culture happened in a face-to-face environment, whatever the culture was, it happened face-to-face. And so if now, in order to be competitive, I mean, the, the, the workforce is more mobile than they ever were before. We see some of the statistics about people leaving jobs um, at a faster rate than they have before. So if, if this is what you need to do to retain talent, how much can you differentiate yourself from everybody else who's also working from home? What becomes the cultural distinction? Right. I think retention will be a huge issue for companies over the next year. You know, it's really hard to develop people to get them inculcated into the culture when they're not there as much or at all. And, you know, on the other hand, I have heard from some people that have said, you know, as employees start to go back to the office, they're kind of like, hey, it's actually nice to be back here, or it's nice not to be working out of my living room. And where's everybody? Let's get more people back here. So I think it's going to be all different shapes and sizes and flavors. I agree. I agree. And look, all of us, or at least some of us, you know, myself included, you know, people that really like closure and like to be able to move on. All right, we've done that. Now let's move on. We're not going to get that closure for a while. But whether you're convinced everybody's going to come back or you're convinced nobody's going to come back, it will be different a year from now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing, the only constant in the universe is change, right? So, well, Mary, and this has been an awesome conversation. And I appreciate the insights you shared about the banking industry. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Alan, again. It was a great experience for me and always good to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Talent Pool podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host and founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to learn more about our firm or these podcasts, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for joining us. 